podcast is brought to you by Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome all you QT faithful to your 15th Tarantino Bible study, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the major scenes from this month's movie. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to once again welcome back for his third appearance, the host of the B News USA podcast, Mr. Pat Fournier. And together we will be taking a deeper look at the Gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the book of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Chapter 2, Rick's Meeting with Marvin Scene. Welcome back, Mr. Fournier, and may Tarantino be with you always. And with you also, uh, Reverend. I like you to call me Reverend. Me well, I mean, <laughs> we scheduled this a long time ago. Yes, this Folks is a who long don't time ago. Yes, I think we talked on the phone for the first time February, March of 2022. And here we are now in almost November. We're Halloween Eve recording this in advance. And we are at the home stretch. It's bizarre that this has flown this fast, that we are now about to finish up the first season of the Church of Tarantino. And we specifically talked about one line in the scene that we're going to talk about today. And I'm actually bringing it in because technically it doesn't fall into the scene, but we're going to annex it into this scene because technically on the DVD, Blu-ray, you how you ever watch it, digital, it will be the beginning of chapter three. But we are going to annex that beginning part into this because it was talked about on the main podcast and we're going to go into it more in depth right now in this one at the end, of, I'm sure. Because we'll, that's at the end. So beware if we start it there. And then just forgot no. the whole beginning. <laughs> no, just just to say that this this conversation about this particular line is is has been a long time coming. It's it's been an obsession of uh, both of ours. And so tonight we uh, we finally laying into rest. Hopefully, yes. But I'm sure there's still more out there <laughs> because Tarantino himself has never spoken about the meaning of the line. You as a fan or a crazy person like me <laughs> had to do a lot of research and digging. And there's a lot of stuff out there. So it'll be fun to when we finally get to it. But what have you been up to since I last talked to you? To our listeners, it'll seem like two months ago, but to you and me, just a couple of weeks. Uh, not very much, actually. 
Uh, how about yourself? I have no plans to go to Quebec anytime soon. How about yourself? <laughs> well, actually, it, it's on my list. I would like to go there, but of course, I, I speak French, so it, it would not be, you know, an imposition like like it is, yes. and, and and an annoyance if uh, you know, especially if, like it was with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I have friends there. I have friends there, so I have people that I would I would like to go uh, meet. People that I've uh, actually uh, podcasted with a, a, a few times, and I've never met in real life. So it, it'll be a you know like a great great moment i think a great great time to go uh, meet with them finally in real life like with you uh, it, yes you know <laughs> well in may the school district i work for their french club is going to go to the city of quebec again and i have put it in my mind to maybe volunteer to chaperone to change my mind on the city maybe it's a little unfair because of the circumstances <laughs> with which i was put into however i am a person who can change their mind, but it'll have been many months since it happened, so maybe it'll be the kind of time frame that I need to feel good about going back to Quebec. So, we'll see. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about fucking French Canada. That's for goddamn sure. Because no, no. no one's talking about not crying in front of the Canadians, I can tell you that. No. <laughs> <laughs> One, this is a fantastic fucking movie, and there's lots of rumors that this will be his, that he could just make this his last, which I hope is to hell no, because I do have this grand scheme plan that this podcast will come to a rest on the final film that he makes, and it'll be me traveling with a bunch of the people who've been on this podcast across this country to see the film on its premiere at his theater in the New Beverly and then we'll have a podcast at whatever hotel, motel, whatever tent village we've decided to stay at <laughs> and talk about this film, probably for some god-awful six-hour podcast that'll be ridiculous. But to close it out, to finally say goodbye to the QT world in a proper fashion. But until then, hopefully, this will be his ninth of ten films and not the last one, because that would really deflate my whole fucking Oh, uh, yeah, that would be anticlimactic. And, and and if we know something about anything about QT is he's he's not anticlimactic. He's always has a the ending of his movies is usually a, a bang. And I, I'm I'm so glad that you invited me for this because since it came out, it slowly be, it became my favorite uh, QT movie and probably top two or three movies uh, of all time for me. So wow, yeah. that is that is creep. That creeps up for me. It's tough. I don't know where I put it. Like I think in the shower today, I was like, I'm gonna do my top nine. How's it go? And I actually did my top ten. I threw in true romance always falls into the top 10 and i started going through and i was like shit it's so hard like i could shuffle the order and it'd be absolutely valid every time you could make a case for a lot of the movies to be in the top five of his at any given time you really can. right i think the top three for me would be easy the bottom three would be easy but the middle could kind of shuffle yes. you know i actually get mad i actually get upset with myself when i start to <laughs> you know i'm like okay this is one this is two and then i'm like oh but what's six? you know like i started to get like six seven eight and i'm like motherfucker these are better you know what i mean like these are better than the numbers <laughs> they're given so it is tough but that'll be that'll be a, a list for another day maybe maybe at the end of this first season beginning of second season i'll throw what i think my list is and then we'll see at the final the final show what the official top 10 list of tarantino podcast is but you know if a qt movies is is like uh the beatles like every beetle fan has a different favorite beetle like you, yes. you know what i'm saying yes agreed so and different it's, favorite it's beetle cool. record as well right and depending probably upon the time you listen to that record you could jump it up and down in your list as well mm -hmm. yeah but that's why i've used the uh the old adage you don't compare tarantino movies to tarantino movies because they're like hanzo swords you compare them to everything that's not made by tarantino and they still <laughs> all shine above they're all sitting on that rack that's true and now it's time to open your tarantino bibles to the book of once upon a time in hollywood chapter two 
Rick's meeting with Marvin scene. Now, this movie, well, it starts in chapter two, so it's not the opening, but the opening is fantastic. But this scene kicks off with one of the standard brilliances that is QT, and that is his character intros. Immediately, we're introduced to Rick Dalton being a drunk <laughs> without us knowing it. Yes. Because he has and handed a whiskey sour. Mm-hmm. I mean, the audience is immediately given information that we should be paying attention to, that he has a predilection for some alcohol. And boy, was he going to like some alcohol throughout the show. (laughs) And kick himself forward. Yes, yes. And then then go right back to it, too. (laughs) He also does it with Al Pacino's character because we get the hood ornament of his phantom. Right. And then, boom, we get Al Pacino's character as Marvin Schwartz. And immediately we're told, you know, subconsciously, that whoever's in this vehicle is of importance. You know, there's a reason that he only shows the hood ornament, not the car. The hood ornament is representative of the car. You don't need to show the car. If you know the hood ornament, you know the car. Just like after Death Proof now, if you were to see, I mean, I know it's also from another movie, but for those of us in the QT world, if you see the rubber duck hood ornament, you know it's Stuntman Mike driving. You know, you'd be like, oh, that's got to be Stuntman Mike driving. And did you notice the first word that we hear when we see the hood ornament? Right at the beginning of that scene. First word on the radio, somebody, uh, there's like an announcer saying. Did you notice? Go, yes, but go ahead. I'm, I'm not going to steal your thunder. Go ahead. You're, you're leading it in. Oh, okay. Murder. Yes. <laughs> That's the first word. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's a lot of foreshadowing. This movie's thick, full of it, chock full. Just this scene alone is chock full of it. And... Good storytellers foreshadow a lot of things, right? That's that's kind of the, the whole basis of storytelling, is you kind of give the, the viewer, the listener, the reader, something, some information that eventually will come to fruition later. And sometimes if you're bad at it and you're heavy-handed with it, it's almost like you're, okay, this is going to come back. Like a lot of bad action movies it's or movies that are out yes. there now, they'll always say, you know, some dumb thing like, you should never shoot a werewolf in the dick on a Sunday if there's a half moon, yeah. you know? And then you're like, <laughs> of course. And then like, right towards the end of the movie, of course, it's a Sunday, there's a half moon. Oh shit, there's a werewolf. And of course, he's going to get <laughs> shot in the dick and we're going to find out why we said that, right? Like it's very heavy handed. Or or someone's like learns yeah. some kind of technique or whatever and they tell you about the technique and then all of a sudden you're like, all right, that technique's coming back or that weapon's coming back. Like heavy handed. But in Tarantino films, he does it so slightly that you just don't, you don't recognize it until all of a sudden like you've watched the movie a couple times you're like, oh, fuck, it's right there in front of me. How did I miss this? Yep. It's like, well, it's the, the Chekhov's uh, flamethrower. Yes, we're going to get into that. Yes, exactly. Now, this movie does start, or this scene starts on Saturday, February 8th, 1969. Mm-hmm. Now, it means more as we go on, because it is a historical moment. As this scene goes past this scene to the next chapter, we hear about, you know, Sirhan Sirhan's about to go to trial for his murder of Robert Kennedy and all this stuff. So there are representatives for the date, but it's actually six months prior to the actual day that Shannon Tate or Sharon Tate and her friends were murdered by the Manson family. So we are six months prior to the end of the film, which we will be covering on the next podcast for the last Bible study. Right. He's telling you that that hasn't happened yet. Yes. He's letting you know. Yep. He's letting you know that you're in February. We still got some time. It's coming, <laughs> but yeah, not yet. And he wastes little time immersing us into 1969's Hollywood. Like you said, we get this, the great you know radio programs with the commercials and eventually we'll get the music. I mean, they're smoking indoors, which doesn't happen at all anymore. Um, the dress, the decor of the restaurants. It's basically Tarantino's fever dream of nostalgia for the 
time period. And it just, it's set up beautifully. Like, it is the closest film in the feeling of Pulp Fiction. Quentin Tarantino spent five years writing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a novel before realizing a film script would better suit the material. He also stated that the story consists of multiple parallel stories, and that is the closest in narrative form to his earlier film, Pulp Fiction. Then I also would say Jackie Brown. It's that mm. you get immersed in a world based on the music and the people and the dress, and you're sucked into this world, and, you're, and, you, and you can't help it. You just he, he gets you with all the glitz, the glamour of you know the places that you're supposed to be and supposedly supposedly the the actual plates that they're using in the restaurant were the plates that Musso and Frank had in the restaurant in 1969 they they took them out for the movie so that it would be accurate that is pretty fucking cool but who else i mean Tarantino yeah. shuts down shuts down one of the, the the highways he redoes all the facades on hollywood boulevard like him scorsese there's a few a few that could actually pull this off right. you know they have that kind of cachet where they could pull off something like that, what we see. But what I love is we don't get much of Cliff Booth in this one, in this beginning. You know, I mean, like, when you watch the movie, we get a lot of Cliff Booth. We get his intro to who he is after this scene. After he's dropped off Rick and he goes home, we get more Cliff Booth. We start to get, the, uh, you know, a backstory on Cliff a bit, just through visuals. Obviously, the book does a great job of really getting us more of Cliff Booth. Really, I feel like that is like a compendium of Cliff Booth's story. You know what I mean? Right. We do get some more Rick. We do get some more of other people. But it really does center more on Cliff. So the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book is more of the story told through Cliff's eyes, where the movie here is told through Rick's eyes. Right. You know, in this. Brad Pitt's jean jacket and jeans costume early in the film is a copy of Tom Laughlin in Born Losers from 1967. The novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood explains that it is wardrobe used on screen in the Born Losers and was given a clip after a week of stunt work on that film. And I'm glad you, you bring up the book because in the book, this whole conversation does not happen in a restaurant. No, it does not. It happened in a, a Martin Schwartz uh, office. Yes. W which, what do you think about that difference? What, why? But you're skipping over the fact that I do believe Cliff Booth would eventually go out with the secretary and fuck her. I think that's kind of what happens in the right. book, if I'm not mistaken. It, it turns out a little more fortuitous for, for Mr. Booth. But, but it could be like a, a barmaid, you know, or, or a waitress or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know why the movie takes place in that restaurant because, you know, visually it, it's, it's very interesting and, yes. and it, it, it brings us back to the past. But in the book, I was surprised to find that the scene was a, in a completely different uh, place. I, I, I thought that was an odd choice. But what do you think about that? Well, I think what Tarantino did is this is a fairy tale. And he decided to tell a fairy tale from different venues. It's funny, the, the location doesn't necessarily change what happens outside of Cliff no, maybe of getting not. lucky. Right. You know, so like, so I think he's smart about that. You know, there's a few things that change within the book different from the movie, but I feel like it adds. And yes, you're right, it is a little, it's a little jarring when you first read that this takes place somewhere else because in your mind you already know where it took place. Right. But at the same time, everything happens pretty much similar. And in the book, the great thing about this movie is we get the flashbacks of the stuff we're talking about, like of his shows. That's not in the book. Like you don't get, you're not going to get the same. They talk about it, but there's no flashbacks. We're not right. getting that, you know, that that deep. So that's like I said. I think that's more of a Cliff Booth story because in the book you get the flashback to what really happens on the boat with him and his wife. Yeah, and the amazing scene that that is. There's a part of me that would love to have seen that come to life on screen, but maybe it's better that's just in the book. And I won't give it up. I won't give it away because those people, a lot of people haven't read the book. They've just watched the film and not read the book. But again, I have no problem with it because it's, you're telling a fairy tale. And the fact that it's a fairy tale, which is why he waits to the end of the film to bring up uh, the name of the movie, right. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I absolutely have no problem with it because 
again, he is the author of it, and it doesn't change. Like, it would be different if, you know, at the end of this meeting, he'd been fired from, you know, it would be different if the whole story changed mm-hmm. and we shifted focus, but he made the right choice. If you're going to, the more boring location was better for the book. Right. Muso and Frank Grill is, is fantastic. I don't know. It's weird. Like, when you, as soon as you see them walk in there, you were almost like, just from our, our own fairy tale of what we think of Hollywood, what we've seen of Hollywood and the stories we've heard of Hollywood, it feels like this is where they would have met anyways. Like, whenever I hear, like, oh, you're meeting in someone's office, I almost feel like that's bullshit anyways. You know, like, I almost feel like everyone's meeting in some restaurant just so they can <clears> all be seen. It feels like this would be so authentic. That kind of felt like a, um, in the book, it feels like a scene out of Entourage. You know, if you've ever seen the yes, show Entourage. Of course. Uh, yeah, I, I like Entourage. But uh, we find something else uh, besides uh, Rick's drinking. There's also something that's going to echo at the end that's going to come back is the uh, Cliff saying, I try, about uh, being a a good friend. Yes, yes. It it does ring back. It comes back and forth. It's his, well, if you drop how the uh, movie begins, it is technically his first and last lines he says in the film. Correct. Yes. And you're skipping over, though, the amazing voiceover from Kurt Russell. I know. Well, I was going to talk about it. It only happens once in a movie, but it's so cool. It's very cool because it's, you know, we find out that Rick really, I mean, at that moment, we find out Rick is really drunk, is a big time drunk. I love how it's like he had one too many DUI incidences, which is crazy because now, you know, I mean, obviously, it's also talking about the time frame that they're in that back then. Clearly drinking and driving, you had many opportunities to do it before they finally stopped you and forced you to no longer drive. Where nowadays, like, you get one, maybe two, and your license is gone forever. It does kind of highlight the way things used to be back in the late 60s, early 70s, where drinking and driving was, eh, yeah, was right. very laissez-faire attitude, as Bob would say. Yeah. It's a very laissez-faire attitude about the hats. So L.A. has a very laissez-faire attitude about drunk driving in the late 60s. Especially if you're an actor, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Especially if you're a TV, uh, you know, TV star. Especially if you're a white actor. Yes. And TV star. And Let's a male. Sure. Well, yes. male and a ma- male helps. Male helps. Because you know women aren't allowed to drive. Those silly, those <laughs> silly lasses. Those silly girls <laughs> trying to drive. Yeah, well, what's next? They're going to vote or something? No, go on. I, I, I made a little note in my, in my, uh, in my notes. I, I would like it. I would really like it if Kurt Russell narrated my life. I, <laughs> I mean, he was great. I know. It's, it's so jarring because like, it only happened so briefly. But I know. Again, it happens once. And then Al Pacino, who is magnificent. Oh, my God. In this small role in this film. Uh, we've had conversations with a couple of my other guests where certain people absolutely shine in their roles, whether they're large or small in Tarantino films. And we have had a few where people don't like them. <laughs> Mr. Ryan Rebelkin does not like, even though she doesn't have a small role, he does not like Daryl Hannah, who plays L Driver and Kill Bill. Uh, as my friends from the podcast no one asked for, we talked about, and I am in agreement, we are not big fans of... Mr. Eli Roth playing Donnie Donowitz. Mm, no. Not a big fan of him in that. And then a lot of people have a problem with Fabian in Pulp Fiction. So there's three of them, but Mr. Pacino does not fall into either of that category. He's brilliant in this. Quentin Tarantino said he wrote the role of fictitious Hollywood agent Marvin Schwartz specifically for Al Pacino. In the opening scene, Al's character discusses how he loves the fictional movie, The 14th Fist of McCluskey, saying he loves the shooting. Interestingly enough, in The Godfather in 1972, Al Pacino's character shoots a character named McCluskey. I don't know why this one of my favorite moments of him but when he sits Rick down and he says that he sends his his regards from his wife 
Jules. Jules. Like, I had no <laughs> idea like why? why he goes up on the name. I don't, I mean, maybe because he got it wrong the first time and I was like singing it out to him. But it's just, it's, I don't know if it was just like he, he was going to try it in this take, but it just fucking works brilliantly and That's I amazing. love it. And if he changed it, I'd be so upset. Like, I can't hear it any other right. way now. But every time I hear it, I'm always like, why is he saying it like that? It <laughs> makes no sense. But yet I love it. Like, it's a, a crazy, like, back and forth in my head. But they, they, this little conversation between Al Pacino and Leo, Leo DiCaprio is a masterclass. Like, it, it's so amazing. Like, they're each, like, they, they're nailing their characters. And it's just yes. like, you know what, at the Olympics, when you have, like, the best of the best in the world at whatever they do, and then you just you just watch it and you you just in awe. And to me, that's like the Olympics of acting right there. It's it's just so yes. it's it's amazing. It's like I get so much pleasure from just watching them. Just just the little facial expressions and like you said, the little intonations of the voice. And it's just it's amazing. I I really like that Leo's got that uh, that tick in his face and 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 his uh, um, st- stutter. Yeah, he he decided to give Rick a stutter, which he only has when he's in public. When he's on film, right. he does not stutter. Correct. But when he's in public and he's not acting. Thing. He's not able to keep himself together, and he right. stutters, and uh, and it works yes. brilliantly. And for him to be able to go in and out of it is absolutely brilliant. And, as and well. it shows you that it. he's he's an insecure person. It, it just it shows you a lot about that character. That and and the little uh, the little excerpts when they talk about the uh, when he's doing the the flamethrower. Ah, it's too hot. You know, you, you can tell he's not as macho as as Cliff. You know, Cliff is the macho yeah. guy. Oh yes. And and, <laughs> yeah. and Rick is like, can we do something? It's too hot. Like he's he's you know he's, <laughs> he's, not, he's not the the male. And then, and then you see him talking. He's he's got that stutter. And I like that Leo didn't lean into that too heavily either it's it's it feels authentic it feels like a real person and it does and some people miss it because you get so wrapped up in his performance that you miss that he's stuttering mm-hmm. when he's not, uh, you know, being filmed, and then when he's playing, Rick, you know, he's Rick Dalton, he he stutters. And I think one of the things that he and Tarantino are doing here is they're kind of giving us a behind-the-scenes look at what some, maybe not the '80s version, but some action hero actors are like. You know, the real tough guys are actually the stunt guys, and the actors playing these tough guys are really just as soft as baby shit, and they really aren't, you know, all all we think they're on screen. On screen, they look cool, but in reality, the people doing all the heavy lifting are the stunt guys, mm. and so I think that's uh, at the end of the scene, you know, we go further past what we're talking about, but when he asks for his sunglasses back, he's like, oh, you know, why don't you come take them? And Cliff makes a step towards him, like, all right, all right, here you go. You know what I mean? Like, he's just walking <laughs> yeah. up, he's like, hey, he knows. Leonardo DiCaprio undertook a strict workout routine in order to convincingly play an action star, giving a pasta and desserts and doing hundreds of push-ups a day. It's like, you know, Cliff's not to be fucked with. You know and, again, mean, so. and again, it's not heavy-handed. That's what I like about it. it it's it's subtle. It's it's not it's not comedic. It's not, you know, it's it's not like a goofy Adam Sandler, you know. No. Those characters are not, they're deep. They're complex. They're, yes. they're not one note. They're not, uh, you know, like I said, Adam Sandler movie where, you know, you have archetypes. They're not archetypes. They're real people. The writing uh, helps and the the performance. I think the, the the two together is is makes makes them feel real like real people. Tarantino based the Dalton Booth relationship on that of a real life duo. During one interview, while not revealing who it was, Tarantino said he got the idea when watching the interaction of an actor with a stuntman. While Kurt Russell's name has been put forward as the inspiration for Dalton, the strongest argument is for Burt Reynolds and his longtime stuntman Hal Needham. Before making a huge impact in Smokey and the Bandit in 1977, Reynolds has spent many years kicking around in TV shows, mostly playing villains, and his career was going nowhere. Tarantino based 
this film on his experience growing up in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s. Reynolds did not leap from obscurity until Tarantino was 14 years old. It is interesting that Dalton played the bad guy role in the featured episode of FBI from 1965, a role that was actually played by Burt Reynolds. I think some of what makes them feel like real people is QT does some world building in this first section. This first part, this first real scene, it's all about character development for Rick. We're really learning about Rick. Yes. But also it's... Al Pacino's character, and this is part of the great writing, him slowly congratulating Rick on his accomplishments before giving him the news about the reality of where he finds himself. And he like it's like he builds up his ego slowly because you can tell that Rick's not he's not a major name. He'd probably be a B-list actor. He was known well on a TV show. We've all known those guys. We've all known those actors who we know from TV, and then they jump to movies, and you're kind of like, mm. yeah. David Hasselhoff esque, right? David Hasselhoff <laughs> yeah. is known as Knight Rider. Yes. And then he made a little jump over to Baywatch. But films, he he just he can't do it. I mean, he does have a great cameo in uh, SpongeBob movie. My kids loved. But other than that. He really doesn't make the crossover because we see him as this TV actor. So I think that's what Rick is. And Rick, he knows he's not hes not in the same category as the guys of the time, the three Georges, as they'll talk about. He doesn't make that list, and he knows it. So he's still kind of humble. But he doesn't mind a guy slowly giving him some credit. You know, he's kind of like, oh, you know, I'm sorry that you had to watch it. But then, but then he goes, but what movies did you watch? Like, he's kind of <laughs> curious as well. You know what I mean? Like, he wants to maybe get a little bit of a congratulations for it. But this is where I love is because now we flash back. And this is the only movie that Tarantino's done this. We spend the majority of the first part of the movie. And you don't realize this scene is like nine to ten minutes long. Like, I didn't even realize that myself. What he does is, is we start to now flash back to all the things he does. So right. we, we hear about Tanner. And we just see the introduction of the titles to Tanner. In the Rick Dalton feature flashback, the first film, running the opening credits, is Against a Crooked Sky from 1975, starring Richard Boone, Henry Wilcoxon, and Glenn Ritchie. But then the 14 fists of McCluskey, and then we eventually also talk about Bounty Law. And so it's these moments that he's slowly building. He's done it in other films where he shot it like a Fern Glorious Bastards. They shot an entire movie, the movie about the, uh, the, Zoller. Yeah. This we actually get to see. We're actually seeing the backstory of someone's life, of what he's done, the acting skills he's had. And I love that we do the 14th Fist of McCluskey. I'm going to be honest with you. I kind of wish it was a real movie. Yeah. There's a part of me that would love to see the 14th Festival. What a title. It's like a B version movie of Inglourious Bastards. Right, exactly. And an older version because uh, German people speak English between themselves with a German accent. That's old style movies because in Inglourious Bastards, German people speak German to each other. Yes. And and that's old Hollywood, like, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, like uh, uh, Native Americans and a Western speaking English to each other. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And when you're yes. used to that, when you when you grow up watching movies, you don't even notice it. But when you think about it, when you sit down and think about it, I had this conversation not long after I met my wife. I'm from France and she's, she's an American. And we were talking about that. And I said, well, I said, think about it. If you and your best friend would travel to France and... And y'all would be sitting, uh, y'all would see each other the next morning at the hotel reception or whatever. Would you say a bonjour to each other? No. 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 They come on No, you would speak English like you do at home. So, you know, it doesn't make any sense for, for two people of the same country, same that speak the same language in a different setting to, to take the, the accent. Uh, and the, the, that makes no sense at all. So that's like old Hollywood. And that that's what uh, those, those two little uh, excerpts, the Nazi movie and the, the Western, even more so, are there to show that Rick was a celebrity, a big deal. But the emphasis is on was. 
You can tell it's yes. black and white. You can tell it's TV. Yep. You can tell yep. it's it's old, you know, uh, 60s, uh, you know, film. World War II yeah. film. B-movie, yep. And it's like he's he's was a big deal. And that's, that's, that's like you said, yeah. uh, Schwartz is slowly bringing, you know, the fact that was. It's great, but yes. uh, not so much anymore. And the, the building up, uh, when, when, you, when you're going to uh, bring somebody some bad news, you, you have some negative to, to, to tell them. To start yeah. with a positive, that's yeah. a very American thing. Yes. Because in, in, in other countries, it would be like, well, the, the, you know, the reason I'm talking to you today is that, you know, let's be, you know, let's not beat around the bush, your career, blah, blah, blah. But instead, it's like, oh, I watched that. I, I, that double feature was amazing. And I got a yeah. cognac and a, you know, a cigar and all. Oh, you so kill with kindness. Yes. And, and that's, that's however, some... I think it's a product of our pop culture, of our TV and our movies. Mm -hmm. I think it's a product. I think that because of the way things are here, you can never just deliver bad news. No. It just can't be. Like, we're getting there. Like, we're, you know, TV and movies have far moved past that. But back then, it had to be, well, we're going to have to give this to him with a little spoonful of sugar. <laughs> A little, huh, gotta help the medicine go down. You know, it's very, very much, and that's I think, something in English I had, too. That's something I had to learn. I, I work uh, like you in, you know, at schools and, and education. And that's something I had to learn because it's it's not cultural to me being raised in France. Uh, like, like you talk to a parent and when, when you talk to a parent about something about their, their child that is not so great, you never say, okay, your kid did this. You never do that. I had to learn. I had to learn to say, oh, he participates really well and he's really interested in it. <laughs> You know he's a good role model for for the for the class and and by the way yesterday he peed in his pants you know so <laughs> yeah. I mean I think the guy knows he knows French top to bottom he does have a you know predilection to pull his penis up but look he does know. A lot of phrases in French. Let's focus on that. I mean, if he could just keep his penis in his pants, they'd probably be better for all. Or at least wear a beret with it. But, but good participation. That, good job. Great. He really participates. And that's something I had to learn. You know, yeah. you, you never start with the bad news. You, you always build that person up. And and, and then slowly you, you inch. <laughs> inch by inch, you, you bring the, the bad news. Well. As you're saying, they are intentional scenes, one, to show us the background of what Hollywood was like and up for quite a while, still similar to. And also because this is foreshadowing in the guise of seeing something cool and also in the guise of some comedy. But we are going to learn that Rick Dalton is very adept at using a flamethrower. Right. He practiced three hours a day for two weeks. He was very good at using the flamethrower. Tarantino is quietly telling us that's going to come into play later. Doesn't seem like it would. We're talking about a movie, and he's talking about his experience with right. this. Right. That's why it's so clever, because it, it seems like one detail about something that it's more important, but it's the opposite. It's the flamethrower is the important part. We're presenting it as, oh yeah, it's just a little anecdote about that movie. Yeah, that's that's yeah, the clever it's part. It's a shit fuck crazy weapon. <laughs> you, great, you, you great don't, combination don't of words. Don't want to be the end of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we cut to him working with it. Yes. And then him being like, can we do <laughs> trying something to be about cool, cool some of that? Heat. And I just love the guy's reaction. Rick, it's, it's a flamethrower. Flame like, I fucking love that. It's just such a. It's, it's a fucking flamethrower, dude. Like, no, we, there, there is no cool setting on a flamethrower. <laughs> Flashback shows Rick Dalton training to use the flamethrower and recoiling from the heat it generates. This was Leonardo DiCaprio's genuine reaction to the flamethrower. Tarantino thought it was funny and left it in the film. But that's the genius is because you're sitting there and you're watching it and you're like, you've seen in the trailer and you with the flamethrower, fried sauerkraut, and you see him do it and it's a great scene and then, you know, he's talking about it and he's excited about it. And then he makes that funny moment about it's too hot and you're not 
paying attention that there's a reason he's showing this flamethrower. Instead of it just, you know, like we talked about, instead of being heavy-handed, he is hiding the fact that this flamethrower will come into play again, that Rick's ability to use it will come into play again. He shows it to us one more time when his yes. buddy goes up to fix it, an antenna on the roof Correct. that we forget about, because we then get fixated on, can Cliff actually be Bruce Lee's ass? It's just genius, and I know mostly people listening to us are fans, but this is why I'm a fan. Yep. I've watched plenty of movies, and I love movies, but a lot of movies, I go, mm-hmm. this is going to happen. This Whatever they've just said is going to fucking happen. Like, in Kill Bill, we should have known the five-finger uh, death punch was going to come back, but we thought it was going to be a sword. Then we went through this whole thing about getting a sword. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kill Bill with this fucking sword. We follow the sword, 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 sword. We talk about swords left and fucking right, and, and then we're about to do this sword fight, and they're dancing. All of a sudden, she goes, do, 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 and you're like, what the f-? And you're like, oh my god, how do we forget about that? That's genius. He hides it. We don't think about it because we think about other things. We forget about the fucking flamethrower because it's funny. We just yeah. think this is some Detail. actor mm-hmm. who's trying to be a badass and he looks like a fucking clown, you know, behind the scenes because he just he doesn't want his flamethrower to be too fucking hot. It is genius. So if anyone who's listening to this for the first time who doesn't know I'm a Tarantino man, this is fucking why. It's because you drip fed this stuff and it's an enjoyable story. It, it goes back to one of our first conversations, I think, on, on your show. You were asking me if I was a fan. Obviously, yes. And what was my first movie? And, and it was Pulp Fiction. And, and exactly what, like you're saying, up to that point before it came out, I liked movies, but most of them were predictable, especially from Hollywood. Most of them, you know, you, you could see the, the, the plot points coming from a mile away. And that's, that's what I really fell in love with. With Tarantino style is when I went to see Pulp Fiction for the first time. I had no idea who it was, and it's this unpredictable. You know, like you have yeah. no idea what's coming next. Any character could die at any moment, which in most movies, no. You 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 know you you can tell the ones that are disposable, and you can yeah. tell the main, and you just don't know. And and case in point, uh, Clarence in True Romance in his original script was supposed to die at the end. Yeah. So you know, so you never know. And I always go back to that uh, the the Gimp scene, but all of a sudden you, you go. What? Well, what? Huh? <laughs> yeah. That would never happen in another movie. Well, at the end of this Gibbs scene, Travolta's killed. And you're like, wait a minute. John, isn't he the star? Yeah. Yes. This is why I enjoy the ride that is Tarantino, which is why I'm sad that it could come to an end at 10. But there are 10, there'll be 10 amazing films, but it's that, it's a fucking ride. People who diss on him, you don't fucking understand at all. Like, I just don't feel that you're very intelligent. That's just my opinion. <laughs> you're not a very intelligent or you don't know movies because you go for a ride. You don't have to always like the ride, but that ride is worth every every penny you, you pay. Like, it's a masterclass every time. It doesn't matter what genre and movie he does. He can go from very violent to no violent. Yeah, and does he steal from other people? Of course, he puts stuff in, but I always said he may not have made the original ingredients, but he's got the best fucking result that anyone else has. And if it's so easy, as myself and Steve and others have said, why the fuck can't anyone else do it? If it's so fucking easy. All of his detractors who say that all he does is steal, well, then do the same. If it's so fucking easy, fucking do the same. But they can't. Exactly. (laughs) They can't. Some people try. <laughs> we'll, we'll get off uh, fucking shitting on the people who are dumb. <laughs> like like the kind of people who don't want their flamethrower to be hot. <laughs> but as we finish up his walk down the greatness of his career, we get the great bounty law yes. moment. 
The term bounty killer is lifted directly from the wording used in Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Western. In American Westerns, they have always been known as bounty hunters. It is worth noting that TV censors would never prove that term. Regardless of the anti-hero concept, the notion that the good guy would be a professional killer would go directly against the standards of the day. And we get Michael uh, no. fucking Madsen. Genius. I, I love Michael Madsen. Me too. He, he is the original, like... When you when you think of Tarantino movies, Michael Madsen is like one, Michael Madsen and Samuel Jackson are the first two people that always come to mind for me. Mm. The first two people. Whenever I see they're going to be in one of his films, I'm like, oh, I get even more excited. You yes. know what I mean? Like I love to see the new people that come in and how they're going to work. But when I see that Sam and Michael are in it, it's very exciting. Yes. You know, and they've only worked together once, which was in the Hateful Eight, which was fantastic. But I'd like to see them work together more. Yep. I really would like to see them in more stuff together. I love Michael Madsen. We we share a birthday. Oh, yeah, uh, a few times. I had to change uh, a hairdresser and, and a barber and when I moved here and my first instinct was to show them one of the first uh, one of his early pictures like one of his early shots and that, <laughs> that, that, that little short pompadour you know I'm like okay yeah. they're this that's what I want I want to look like Michael Madsen <laughs> you want to look like Mr. Blonde yes. Mr. Fucking Blonde <laughs> This is the first of Quentin Tarantino's films in which Michael Madsen plays a character who doesn't die. Madsen claimed that after filming The Hateful Eight in 2015, he jokingly complained to Tarantino about how every character he has in play ends up dying. Tarantino gave him a brief role in this film as a response. What I love about this scene in particular is we get all the flashbacks. You know, so we get to see his 14th of McCluskey. We get to see, obviously, Bonnie Law. And I love how much he's captured 1950s television. Yes. You know, you and I are of an age to remember when there was Nick at Night and then it turned into TV land, but it would play the old TV shows that would run from like late 50s, the 60s, maybe early 70s. Like you could see some of those old shows on cable here in America. Or even when I was growing up, you would get them on syndication on some of the channels outside of like, because I'm in New York, we would get a channel called WPIX, which is Channel 11 down in New York City. And they would, you know, play like shows like Good Times and, mm -hmm. and older shows that were before my time, you know, when I was, I was still probably very little when they were still coming on. But like, they were just captures. It makes me want his Netflix series to actually come fucking true. Like, I really want to see Bounty Law me too. 5 to 8, whatever it is. I just want to see the one season of it because it would just be so great. I, I would hope that he can get DiCaprio to do it. I would love to see Matson do it. You know, I'm hoping that he takes the transition to TV now. Like, if right. he's not going to do movies Correct. anymore, I really hope he goes to, like, even one-off shows and stuff like that. I would really he's love He's going to write, for sure. Well, he's got a book that's He's going to continue to write. Yeah. But, like I said, I would love to see this show. I would love to see him make that turn, and I would love to see Bounty Law. Oh, yeah. Did, did you notice? Of course, I'm sure you did, that uh, Rick Dalton's character has a... Uh, so, Jay Cahill, he's got a white hat, and Michael Madsen's got a black hat. That's yes. that's to yes. show you. Yes, they did it. I know we're in black and white, but we even... Yes. We, we're going to hit you over the head that it's the 50s because the good guys have white hats and the bad guys have black hats. Well, if you're a fan of Westworld at all, the very first season of Westworld mm -hmm. and second season, when you first go to Westworld, you have an opportunity to choose if you're going to be good or bad in your character, and you pick white or black hat, and that's the definition of your character. So, even in Westworld, they completely paid homage to the way Westerns were shot in the 50s mm. and here in America that the white and the black cats was the definition of who was good and who was bad. It's there to show you uh, Rick Dalton comes from a, an era that's now gone. In 69. He's, he's the past. Long gone. He's the past. He's fighting it. Right. We'll get into it towards the end here, but it is also, this movie is also a story about certain people not being able to grasp that their time in the sun is over and they are fighting against it. Mm -hmm. And they will do anything they can. They don't like change. Mm -hmm. However, the interesting part about that is, is when you are younger, you can't wait to change things. And then you get to the top and then you realize your time is over 
and it's someone else's turn and you desperately cling on and act like a fucking idiot and an asshole and like all old people and then you now are what you hated. You become that which you despise. But yeah, so uh, the clothes that he's wearing in Bonnie Law and the clothes he's wearing in 69, like, you know, and of course it's black and white. It, it's all there to show you that time has passed since Rick Dalton was cool and happening. And that, that little uh, behind the green door, that is so, I was about to get into that. That is so, so early great. 60s. Yes. The, the way he's dressed, the hullabaloo. I mean, it's, it's just to show you the difference between what he used to be and what he is now. Which is interesting too, because he does make a bit of a change six months later when he returns from Italy. Right. Sliding into the hippie. Because he's decided to go with the times. Plus, he's not in America for a couple months. Right. So I think that does have a, a drastic effect on him. He sees things differently than he does through in his American eyes. But like you said, the hullabaloo moment, which is one of my favorite yes. little parts of this. Initially, Leonardo DiCaprio was scheduled to sing either Green Door, a 1956 hit for radio personality Jim Lowe, or Cole Porter's Don't Fence Me In, popularized by singing cowboy Roy Rogers. In the end, they went with Green Door. But it's all this back padding and dick worshiping has culminated into this last little moment of being like, you remember this funny little moment, haha, <laughs> Rick, in your career? Because he's about to go, the rest of your career is really much, pretty much has peaked after that. Like, it's pretty much over <laughs> That's now. That's what we're watching. Green Door is pretty much... Right, that, that was his That's peak. about it. That was the, the tip. Yeah, you're. this is when you're about to fall off the mountaintop. <laughs> and I love it because, like you said, we've built it up. We've enjoyed watching this little ride and Rick. And we're kind of like, man, that was cool. Rick's done some cool stuff. I kind of like Rick. I could get in on Rick. And then Marvin pulls the fucking rug out from underneath <laughs> <Zoom>. him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow, zoom. Just, <laughs> I love that. Uh, that zoom, I can't get enough. He's of it. so fun, good. The zoom and also the sure, <laughs> the two best deliveries of lines. <laughs> like it's almost like the you know like the hua and also yes. like Give me what I got! when he's in heat. But he's like he's found a way to channel it into a softer way right. of delivery. If this had been a Michael Mann movie, he would have been like zoom. He's he's being Al Pacino, but who's but at the same time it's Martin Schwartz. So it's yes, like, he is Marvin Schwartz. It, it's perfect. It, it's not over the top. It's just perfect. It, it's great. I, I love him in, the, in that scene. The delivery here, when he's telling him, it's an eye-opening thing for us as the viewer as much as Rick, because we are now Rick, and we're sitting there, and we're getting, again, behind-the-scenes information of what Hollywood has been like, the Hollywood system, and how it churns out. If this is what it does to male actors, right, it allows them to go on TV, get their ass kicked by the hero of the week, and eventually disappear. We all know how what it did to women and what it did to minorities we didn't even get a chance to get in the door no. it really is a, a shit business like you have a very defined window of time and I think it's also interesting that the person delivering this is Al fucking Pacino in his 70s so this isn't Al star Al's a fucking bit role in this movie mm -hmm. he's not even the star or uh, you know a, the co-star he is an extra in this film. And he's the one delivering the news almost as if he's telling Leo, it's almost like he's like telling Leo, look, I was you just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And now this is where you're headed, son. You're one day are gonna be an extra part. You remember Scarface? Well, look at me now. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Remember Heat? Give me all you got. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> now look at me. Mommy Schwartz. <laughs> <laughs> He's got pow zoom. zoom. Oh, it's just a great synergy of actor dialogue situation. It's perfect. It plays so well because here you are. We have a well-known actor. I don't think anyone else could have played the part outside of a Pacino, a De Niro, a Pesci. Someone who was the old guard right. that 
us, the generation that even is Leo, because he's our age, which is crazy to mm-hmm. think. Yeah. That generation, Generation X, grew up watching them. Yes. They were our idols. The 90s cinema, you know, I know they had earlier careers, but 90s cinema was like them. We couldn't get enough of them. And now, you know, De Niro's doing these grandfathers. Like they're all playing old guys now. Yeah. And yet in our minds, we're like, but the Travis Bickle. <laughs> They're the Scarface. How are they not still them? Yeah. And now Leo, who we've grown up with, and it's almost like he's talking, like it's our fathers talking to us like, hey, guess what? You don't have to spring chicken anymore. <laughs> you know what yes, I mean? Exactly. Hey, Gen X, guess what? <laughs> it's that time. It's yep, that time. You've Bye-bye. reached. You are midlife now. You've reached it. Like, you have two ways to go. Go gracefully. Be like Mavi Schwaz. <laughs> or you can go like Cliff, or I mean, like Rick Dalton, and go hard and just become an asshole. It was a cool scene because for most people, it's not going to hit. But for you and I, the Generation X, the real fans of Tarantino, even Tarantino himself, we are no longer young. No. When we started with Tarantino on this ride, we were in our oh, 20s. Yeah. Or just getting to Late our 20s. Teens. Yeah. Late teens going to our 20s. And now we're pushing 50. And you're like, well, how the fuck did that happen? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> wow, our day in the sun is like, we've reached it. We're at the apex. We're like, okay. Yeah. We are now. <laughs> we, we are now going to be doing hullabaloo <laughs> behind the old green door. You know I love that We're clip. on our way out. I love that clip. I love Leo's. Uh, uh, it's just the little little nuances that he does when he when he says uh, with that kid uh, Scott Brown. Yeah, yeah. Like he just. Yeah. I love yeah, exactly. that. And 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 he says it in a way that uh, uh, Schwarz uh, Al Pacino knows exactly what he's talking about and who and why he dismisses him. I, it's just little little nuances there. I love it. The television series Bingo Mart and its star Scott Brown, referenced in the meeting between Rick Dalton and Marvin Shores, never existed. Both the TV show and star were created for the film. It's the insider talk, where yes. we've been led into a world we're not supposed to be a part of. We haven't worked our way in. And Tarantino, in all of his movies, has given us insight of stuff that we didn't know that he has a very good grasp on and, and, and you know, first-hand knowledge for some of it. It's just beautiful. Like, I think why it resonates to the Pulp Fiction crowd, who were fans at Pulp Fiction, the reason we love it so much is because it's like, what what would the characters of Pulp Fiction be now? Where are those actors now? We are no longer the cool, hip Pulp Fiction movie anymore. Mm. You know, we're not, as I got my shirt, we're not the Royale with fucking cheese anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're just not. We are now, oh, hey, look, it's that old guy with the Royale cheese shirt on. You know what I mean? <laughs> People still come to us and ask us about those days. Now we're like our old, our parents talking about them, like, oh, the glory days, you know? And it's about changing. Like, basically, the whole point of Marvin's conversation with him is to set him up for how great you were, knock him down for, now you're just a fucking punching bag. At the end of the day, Marvin he's got still wants something yeah. out of him. Mm-hmm. He's not. I mean, he's not there to be nice. He's not giving him career advice because he's a nice guy. He sees him as the ability to make some money in some spaghetti westerns that he possibly is producing yeah. or helping finance. So who better? He sees him as J.K. Hill. He was a great guy. So, but put him in a western. Let him do westerns, and then we see how it culminates at the end. But it's so great because it leads us to the moment we have been circling. For months. Yes. This is where we get our little buddy scene. And yes, folks, this is not in chapter two. This is really annex beginning of chapter three. I think the people made the Blu-ray DVD, they should have pushed this to that point. When they yep. get in the car and drive out, right. that ends the scene. But I'm not in charge of that. The scene, in my opinion, ends at that moment. Yes. Because this is still part of the scene. Because he's asking what he just why he's crying. What's up? Yeah. So those of you who are not familiar with the scene, I don't know why you're listening to this fucking <laughs> part of the podcast or it. this podcast at all. But there is a moment at the end where we actually get to see the name of the restaurant, which is Muso and Frank's Grill. 
And Rick and Cliff are talking about what has just transpired between Rick and Marvin. And Rick, Rick is pretty upset, and he starts to cry because he has come face-to-face, which some of you already know how this feels, as myself and my friend Pat do, as you come face-to-face with your own mortality and realizing that your time in the sun has passed and you have a choice to gracefully go with it or fight against it and hope that your first 20 years of life are going to come back around again, which they're not. <laughs> You're angry at everybody else who's not like you from the 19 yada 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 and you look like a fucking idiot, or you just go gracefully, you're one of those old guys who walks around like a Hawaiian shirt and <laughs> your dick hanging out and he's got sandals and he's like, hey, I don't even give a fuck. You could be one of those cool guys or someone who tucks their pants into their fucking jeans and has a rope belt and has a fucking case for their cell phone and looks like a fucking ass clown. This is where Rick is headed. <laughs> and unfortunately, Cliff's already there. However, it's weird. Cliff is a very cool, but yet still macho guy. He is cool macho. Yes. Cry cool macho. <laughs> <laughs> and as he starts to cry, he makes a comment and he says, don't cry in front of the Mexicans. The funny thing is, is this conversation started months ago. And it was while we were talking about it that it just dawned in my head that this means more than we think it means. Because we were just reminiscing about the movies that we liked and we were talking and we talked about that scene. And it just like in the moment we talked about it, I was like, there's more to this than is there. Because he never puts anything in just no. out of circumstance. Now, I'll preface this. He has not spoken about this publicly that I could find anywhere. So Tarantino's not made any comment. No one's asked him questions about it. Brad Pitt was asked about it. He kind of sidestepped about why he said it. I have a couple of things I found, but I am going to allow my friend Pat, to tell us what he's found. And also, what were your initial thoughts when you heard this comment? And I'm not going to say the first time, because the first time, I think everyone laughed because it is played for some laugh factor. Because it's just one of those comments that comes out of fucking left field. Like when you heard Zed go, bring out the gimp. And you're like, what? <laughs> Excuse me, what? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, what did he say? Bring out the, what? He mean pimp, right? Like, he meant pimp. Yeah, well, he definitely said pimp. <laughs> you know, even that doesn't make sound well, but yeah, he meant pimp. So when you hear him go, don't cry in front of the Mexicans, you're kind of like, there's no context. No. We don't go back to it ever again. We never visit it in any other movie. You're just like, okay. So <laughs> when you first heard it and you realized it for the first time, what was your initial thought? And then I will let you tell us what you found in your findings before I jump into mine. Uh, just just a little background. I'm, I'm half Spanish on my dad's side. My, my dad's uh, whole family is from Spain. And we were talking about macho a minute ago, and it's, it's definitely a real thing. Uh, the machismo and, the uh, you know, you, you, a man's got to be a man and he can't show we- weakness and, and all that kind of stuff. So my first reaction was that was, OK, the, these are Hispanic men and don't don't show weakness because, you know, it's not something that you should do. And I did a little digging and I, somebody made a point somewhere online uh it it's also brings back to the old don't argue in front of the help kind of thing yes. people that have you know servants and y- you don't you don't make a scene in front of the help i think it's a mix of both it's a mix of don't don't show weakness in front of the help because you are it's a class thing also it's number one you're you know you you're the client you you're the customer and they're the help let's face it they they're very low on the totem pole on top of being the customer you also are a movie star or, or a TV star. So it, it's like that that class thing and also the, well, the, the Mexicans, they, they don't show weakness in, in from his, Hispanic males. It's not cool. They're going to laugh at you. As soon as we turn around, as soon as we pull out the parking lot, they're they going to laugh. They're going to laugh at us. <laughs> Look at those gringos. That you're, you're on no gringos. Gringo, gringo, you're on no. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. 
La Llorona. Uh, you know, and, and, and next time you the, next time you get there, they, they're gonna whisper. Pendejos. Uh, yeah, pendejos. Putos. <laughs> you know, and ne next time next time you go eat, they, they you, you're gonna turn a corner and they they're gonna call you uh you know the new nickname they came up you know, you know because you cried last time. So I don't know what 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 are your opinions about it? So I found a couple things and I have written down a little thing that I'm gonna. You had a more elegant way of speaking it, but I, oh. I wrote it down early. Today, so. Okay. Since this is a Tarantino film, this line has many context attached to it. One that this was an era of supreme machism, as you were saying. Men crying or showing their feelings was frowned upon in society, especially by men who had been told not to cry by their equally repressed macho fathers. So crying in public anywhere was a huge no-no. Another meaning behind it was that, as you were saying, they were Hollywood stars, and you don't cry in front of the so-called help. Now, breaking that barrier was also a no-no because Hispanics make up a majority of the service industry workforce in Hollywood. And the irrational fear was your weakness and degenerate behaviors would spread across town between the Hispanic community. So then you would be exposed and show your true colors in front of the Mexican workers was also a fear. And you did not do that. As you were saying, you do not break the line of, and I hate saying this, but just for the context that we're talking about, of the superior person who is your boss and essential or the person employing you and you as the help or the lower class of person because you're the minority. We're going to say that's what it is when they were talking about it. I'm not saying that's true. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger. I, Reverend CIK, is not saying it. I believe in his shit. Just saying this is what the time frame was, all right? This is 1969 Hollywood. I wasn't even born yet, all right? I'm still my dad's sack, all right? It's not my beliefs and not my system, all right? Don't come after me for this. This is just what I'm telling you. Don't say Basically. Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that at all. This line also is Tarantino's statement on the falsehood of Hollywood being this liberal bastion of progression. Since its inception, Hollywood has whitewashed history, marginalized people of color, and enabled the tit-for-tat casting couch boys club monsters like the Weinsteins that have terrorized female actors for over a century. This simple throwaway line, played for laughs and now a popular meme, shines a light on the American white male bravado that has in recent years given away to the MAGA movement. It shines a light on the continual whitewashing of American films and stories through the marginal of minorities and shines a light on the hypocrisy of an industry that prides itself as the beacon of liberal idealism. So this simple line of don't cry in front of the Mexicans has a lot to say in a very small phrase that is funny when you first hear it and is always funny when you hear it, but there is so much contextual meaning in it. It is just shining that light on the old male bravado of how we marginalize people who are not white and who are not male. Here's Hollywood. This is supposed to be the liberal progressive front. And yet today in 2022, we still have whitewashed award shows. Actors of color deserve things. Don't get it. We have uh, people of color not getting roles that are based on their own heritage. So we've been doing it for a long time. And it also shows that the public is still into the whitewash as we have people flipping out because there is a black mermaid. I will say that again. A black mermaid. The key is the last part, the mermaid, a fictional fucking part female, part fish. You're having trouble with a fictional character, skin color. <laughs> really? A, 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 a my, my, my fellow animal. Star Wars fans have problems <laughs> with colored people being in Star Wars when half the fucking thing of Star Wars is everyone's an alien. Like, really? 
Fuck off already. Like, seriously. Your time in the sun, like Rick, is fucking over. Now, fuck off already and either go quietly or just die loudly. Whatever you want to do. Please move off the earth at this point. It's ridiculous that we have this as a problem in the world. God damn it. Dude. They're putting blacks in the sea as mermaids. God damn it. How, how am I going to my children going to be able to live? Everybody knows Jesus that. Everyone knows this. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fucking unbelievable. Yes. Anyways, the end of our big thing was it is such a small moment. But if you've listened to the podcast up to this point, you've heard it in all my others. Tarantino has a real voice. He has a real belief on certain issues. He does not publicly use to say them. He uses his films with which to talk. And he uses his characters to do the talking for him. And if you don't pay attention, if you think he is a card-bearing member of the South KKK, then you did not watch Django and Chain <laughs> and the Hateful Eight close enough. All right? I'm just telling you, a lot of things happen to redneck white people and pieces of shit. So that is the final nine-month journey that we have taken <laughs> to figure out the saying of don't cry in front of the Mexicans. You don't have to like it. You don't have to believe it. But Go out there, do your own research. It was always a pleasure. Again, Mr. Fornes to finally put to bed this statement. We did. And, and you put it very eloquently also. And that will do it for the first of two Bible studies this month. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Pat Fournier, host of the B News USA podcast, for joining me again today. Now, you can find the link to Pat's podcast and the show's socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. So join me again next week as Pat returns once more for the final Bible study of Season 1 as we sit down to dissect and discuss the home invasion scene from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.